what kind of music you were playing, how you were listening to music, what you think a golden era of Canadian music was, that may depend on when you grew up. You know, was it the 70s with Neil Young, the Guess Who, BTO, Joni Mitchell, the stuff my parents used to play all the time. Maybe the 80s, the stuff I used to annoy my parents with, like Loverboy and Red Rider, Glass Tiger, Brian Adams, Corey Hart, Men at Hats especially, Men Without Hats, rather. Uh, then you've got The Hip, Blue Rodeo, The Cowboy Junkies, Pursuit of Happiness, it goes on. But my next guest sent something very special was going on in this country right around the turn of the millennium uh, with bands like Tegan and Sarah, Broken Social Scene, Buck 65, Godspeed You Black Emperor, and so forth. And it forms the basis of a new book called Hearts on Fire, Six Years That Changed Canadian Music, 2000 to 2005. And joining me now is the author of said book, Michael Barkley. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you so much for having me on to talk about this. It's really interesting because I remember all those bands. Uh, I don't remember, you know, the era as well as I should. I think I was working a lot. Uh, but what was the inspiration? You, you mentioned it uh, in sort of in, in interviews you've done. You realized that something really special was going on. When did the light bulb go off? Um, I had just finished writing a book about the 80s and 90s called Have Not Been the Same. And that was, it was about all those bands you mentioned. Um, uh, Blue Rodeo, Tricycle, Hip, uh, Sloan, um, Spirit of the West, uh, et cetera. And then um, right when that book came out, uh, there's a band from Vancouver called The New Pornographers who um, kind of came out of nowhere with zero expectations, and suddenly the New York Times said they put out one of the best records of the year. And then at the same time, the most uncommercial band possible, Godspeed You Black Emperor, which was like a nine-piece instrumental uh, anti-capitalist collective who made 20-minute uh, songs, um, were one of the most buzzed about uh, bands all across Europe that year as well. And then um, one of the hottest bands in Toronto, the Constantines, uh, I realized were living literally 100 meters away from my house. But I hadn't left the house because I was writing this other book. I'm like, wait a minute, you mean one of the greatest bands in Canada is like, I can stumble out of my door and go into their basement and see them melt my face off? And um, Peaches, like, uh, there were just so many things happening around that time. Sarah Harmer put out an amazing record that year. The Weaker Thans put out a phenomenal uh, record that year, one of the best rock and roll records I've ever heard in my life. So I, I just felt like there was already this groundswell happening at that point. And then within a couple of years, you know, we had Broken Social Scene and Feist and then Arcade Fire, etc. So, um, yeah, so many things were happening in that time. I do think that it is, it, it was as creative and fertile as, say, you know, Laurel Canyon in California in the 70s or, or London punk rock of the 70s. Wow. Um, you know, like, t take your time and place. And I feel like the world was really looking to Canada in the early 2000s for a lot of interesting new music and, and all these people doing very interesting things in their genres that really made the world pay attention. And I guess like so many of those events, it, it is much easier to recognize in retrospect because in the early 2000s, of course, I think of all the things that were popular back then. And a lot of the bands you've spoken about were critically acclaimed, but you didn't hear them a lot. And there was, and it felt like a lot of it was based around live shows, word of mouth. Uh, you know, this wasn't top 40 stuff that you were, I mean, some of it was, but not a lot of it was. No, it wasn't. I mean, and there was other top 40 stuff that was doing really well stuff. I mean, you know, Nickelback is the obvious one and, and some 41 Avril Lavigne, you know, um, Nelly Furtado. That's, and that's, that's all fine. That's not really the music I'm interested in. Um, all those people worked their ass off and did really well through radio primarily. Those people had huge mm -hmm. radio hits. And, but the time period I'm talking about is kind of when the weirdos won and no, you didn't hear this on radio. And this was music that was being disseminated online 
for the first time. So this is like the early, you're just talking about the iPod. This is pre-iPod and, and, right. and leading, up, leading up to the launch of the iPod. And, and so this, it's kind of the beginning of the decline of physical media. Um, artists don't need those traditional gatekeepers, uh, whether it's media, radio, uh, distribution. Um, you know, nobody's buying records on import anymore, if you're old enough to remember what that meant. Oh, um, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, I remember that meant uh, half my allowance. I remember that. Yeah. That's right. So all these Canadian records are going all around the world and finding their niche audience. So it doesn't matter if you're someone like, like Caribou, who makes like psychedelic electronic jazz. Obviously, that's never going to be played on the radio next to Nickelback in Canada. However, it'll, it'll find its niche audience around the world, and he can play to thousands of people across the world. And, and so that's the transformative moment that I think happened uh, in the 2000s. And the other weird thing is there's really no, no metric to measure it because we're no longer counting sales, right? And, and so you are, uh, I guess you're, you're counting uh, concert tickets, like the size of venues you're filling. But, you know, nowadays it's very transparent with streaming. I mean, anybody can see, like, how popular uh, Song X by Artist Y is. Um, and back in the old days, you would have, you know, SoundScan, um, uh, uh, you know, scanning the barcode at retail. You, tell right. how, you can tell how much good things. But this, this period of time, you know, I say, you know, Arcade Fire's funeral um, sold 500,000 copies within the first couple of years of its release. So I will bet you that 10 times more than that, um, people had that album on their computer. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. It was a very, I mean, the whole music was transforming, at least the way we consumed it was transforming over that period. One of the things I found interesting too, is you mentioned that, that these were all, these were bands from right across the country. There was, so you, you couldn't call it a Canadian sound per se. It was no, happening no in different ways in different parts of the country with different bands. Some of them never heard of each other. I remember my dad calling me to pay, to play me the uh, elegy from Gump Worsley, uh, the weaker than song. Cause he thought right. so, I mean, it, there was so much great stuff going on, but, it, but again, it didn't feel, it was like that. What happens now it's sort of disparate and, and it, you know, how, how did you account for that? And, and how did, how did you manage to tie it all together as being something unique? What makes it Canadian, I guess. Um, nothing makes it uniquely Canadian, but I do think that um, a lot of these artists, uh, and again, a lot of them do not sound like each other at all. Uh, you know, another one of my favorite bands in this time is the Bigatanias from Vancouver, and, and you know that's very different than Alexis on Fire. You know, um, yeah. but we're t we're still talking about the same period of time, and, and and a lot of similarities in the way these people became successful. But I think I think the thread is that a lot of these artists, again, were unique in their genre. Right, so you know, broken social scene. People weren't used to a band like that, like a band that size, and and who's singing, and they all have these other successful bands on the side, and and uh, and now everyone's picking up horns all of a sudden. Like, what is going on? Uh, or the hidden cameras, uh, kind of a, a similar thing, um, with, with more of a queer bent to it. Um, and, and then, uh, or someone like Corb Lund from Alberta, like nobody was writing songs like that in country music, like with that level of. of regional detail about Albertan ranching culture, but like with this really witty and interesting uh, lyrical eye, um, uh, you know, the Bigotanias were not like um, quick finger-picking bluegrass musicians. They played like really strange haunting music um, that had a lot more in common with the Cowboy Junkies than anybody who was coming out of that Oh Brother Where Art Thou movement. You know, Kid Koala was a turntablist who didn't make hip-hop. He made what sounded like Muppet vaudeville music. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. all these people were doing something unique that that really 
that made everybody else in their genre around the world go, whoa, what is that exactly? And then, and then Canada got a new rep because before Canada, you know, we all, we as Canadians, we've traveled abroad and they're like, oh, Canada, ha ha ha, you know, Celine Dion, Brian Adams, Nickelback, whatever. And, um, and this was like, oh, no, no. Now the world realized just how interesting and broad and, and diverse Canadian music is and how wonderfully weird a lot of it is, too. And, and that, that became Canada's new musical reputation. I was living in, uh, in the UK when Brian Adams is everything I do spent 100,000 weeks at number one. And by the end I was being yelled at for having yeah. imported Brian, Brian, Brian Adams to the UK, uh, or at least the yeah. song. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. I, I was really curious to know what the, where do you think this fits in? Cause you just written a book about all those great bands between 85 and 95. And I was just wondering what the evolution was, what happened in those years that led up to this, you know, this huge growth of creativity in Canadian music again. And then what has it given us today that we would still recognize out there? Clearly it laid the, way, uh, the groundwork for bands like Arcade Fire, but uh, we'll get to that in just a minute. I'm speaking with Michael Barkley. He's the author of Have Not Been the Same, the Can Rock Renaissance 1985 to 95, and the newly released Hearts on Fire. That's the one we're talking about. Six years that changed Canadian music, 2000 to 2005. You know, just listening back to get ready for tonight, listening back to all those songs, I was reminded of just how eclectic it all was and how interesting it all was. Um, what was the what was the lineage there? Did you think? I mean, you wrote about that great era between eighty five and ninety five, and then all of a sudden we have all these different sounds emerging in the early two thousands. Um, what, what what was the string that drew that? What was the history there? Um, why did it start sounding a lot different? I mean, I think it's generational. I mean, certainly, um, I remember writing have not been the same with uh, my two colleagues, and and uh, you know, a lot of the origin stories of these bands were quite similar. It's like Oh, we we listened to the Beatles. We listened to the Velvet Underground. We listened to the Clash. Like, and that's what everybody listened to before they started their band. This time, with Hearts on Fire, um, the generation of the early two thousands, they were listening to all kinds of things, all kinds of like obscure garage rock or psychedelic records or weird German electronic music or uh, underground hip hop from the from the states. Um, again, like they're their influences were not just, we like the Beatles because everybody likes the Beatles. That's like breathing the air. But like, um, so these influences were really, uh, much, much more varied and unusual. And, and that, um, and then they took all those influences and, and absorbed them and then came out with something original. Um, and not to say those earlier bands weren't original, but, um, a lot of those earlier bands, kind of fit into patterns you know i mean the tragically hit fit into a certain pattern of rock music blue rodeo fits into a certain pattern of rock music through the happiness um you know all, all these people uh we kind of understand the parameters of, of what they're doing um whereas with this time out it was it was it was a bit more left field where do we still hear what did it lay the groundwork for that we're still seeing today do you think um i mean Musically, I think there's again it's it's so diverse it's hard to talk about it in a short amount of time. But um, right. I do think there's there's a long musical influence, and and a lot of these bands are, are still doing quite well uh, today. I mean, I, I've I've seen a lot of them in the last. I haven't even been to many shows in the last uh, year. <laughs> Very few actually. But um, I mean, the new pornographers were amazing when I saw them. Broken Social Scene were amazing when I saw them a couple weeks ago. Um, I, Godspeed were incredible uh, uh, last week. I'm going to see Sarah Harmer t- next week. Um, right. They're all on the road and they're all doing great. 
Um, but I think what the, your question about the influence is really more about the business and the business models. Because remember, these, these people were, were building their career at a time when the sands were shifting underneath them. Like everything everybody thought they knew about the music industry in 2000 was like obliterated by 2005. Um, yeah, yeah, everything this, changed, and, yeah. And 2005, I think, is the dawn of YouTube, right? 2004 is the dawn of, of the iTunes store. So mm-hmm. um, everything was changing. And then um, I think the, the fearlessness is, is really um, the lasting influence. Because all the artists I'm talking about, um, because they had, didn't have expectations of getting played on, on corporate radio and having radio hits, they're just like, I'm just going to do my weird thing. And then, oh, my God, look what happened. The rest of the world noticed. And, and, um, and, and that kind of DIY spirit and independent spirit um, that, that led to, uh, that goes hand in hand with the creative fearlessness, I think that is the lasting influence. And you see that throughout genres, too. You see that with someone like Mustafa. You see that with someone like The Weather Station. You see that um, with someone like Daniel Caesar, um, uh, July Talk. Like all, all, these, all these newer artists that, again, don't sound anything like each other, but um, I, think, I think they took all the lessons learned from this generation of musicians who were really sort of figuring out as they went uh because things had changed so quickly you mentioned something interesting too that uh a lot of these bands were actually far more popular in stranger places like some of these bands were very popular in the uk but not very popular here or popular in different parts of the world uh even even sort of the success was a bit a bit random and eclectic yeah, I mean, there's very. I mean, part of my thesis was to talk about the people that the rest of the world noticed. So there's very few artists um, like Sarah Harmer, or Sam Roberts, or Joel Plaskett, who I do talk about because I think they're all incredible artists. But they kind of had minimal impact impact um, outside the country. And then there's people like uh, like Peaches, who is not a household name at all in Canada, um, but incredibly influential, very sexually charged underground electronic uh, pop music. Um, she is directly responsible for Leslie Feist's career, um, which right. a lot of people uh, don't realize. But I was in Berlin recently on, on Unrelated Matters and um, right. talking to people about the book and and, uh, and the guy who works at the major magazine in Germany. He's like, I was, I was like, so who do you recognize? Look at, look at this list here. He's like, oh, Peaches. Peaches is like our mascot in Berlin because she moved there in 2000. Yeah, and and and, and, um, yeah. and um, yeah, she's she's huge there. Like she put on like a jukebox musical about her life in Berlin. Uh, there's an audience for it, you know what I mean? Um, and then I also think even popular Canadian bands like Billy Talent, I think Canadians don't realize just how popular they are in Germany. They play those huge festivals opening up for Metallica in front of like 100,000 people, you know? Um, and and uh, a band like Alexis on Fire will go and, and play in like Brazil and, and, and fill venues, you know? Like, um, yeah. I think there's, I think a lot of Canadians don't realize how popular these people are outside of Canada. I only have a minute left, but but it is fascinating that you've assembled this this sort of this look at this era along with forty two bands uh, charting it out. Uh, a last word to you just about what you'd like listeners to know about uh, about the book and and why they should read it. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, no it's a great book, and, and I hope I hope <laughs> people learn something. Like it's it's unlikely that a lot of readers will know every single artist in the book. But I do think that all the stories are fascinating. I think all the stories are different from each other, and I hope that people really um, discover a lot of great music and learn lessons about how the music business works. And I would say that I also uh, assembled a bunch of playlists at michaelbarkley.ca slash playlists, 
for Tidal, Apple, and Spotify. So if you want to yep. dive in deep, there's a chapter-by-chapter chapter, uh, playlist breakdown there. And the book is widely available uh, through your favorite local independent bookstore or anywhere else you choose to shop uh, from ECW Press. It's always nice to uh, to shine a bright light on Canadian talent. Michael Barkley, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me here tonight.